1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg
1: Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney live here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. John was just reporting on American Express AXP. Uh, blockbuster numbers beat estimates, uh, looks like, a record quarter. Stock's down at 4%, so I'm sure the market may be I guess didn't like the guidance here, but let's check in with somebody uh, who actually knows this stuff. Ben Elliott, he's an analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, covering the consumer financials, uh, and that includes American Express. Ben, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, what's the takeaway from our good friends at American Express?
3: Look, Paul, Amex is still the best card company to own if you're going to be interested in this space. But, you know, the, the macro fears are, are weighing on the entire industry. Um, you know, they're, they're essentially plays on GDP. Okay. Um, and when, when, with people afraid of a recession to come, uh, you know, Amex can't kind of escape what's weighing down the entire sector, even though they're probably twice as good as their nearest peer.
2: In what sense are they twice as good? You mean in terms of um, profit margins, in terms of returning money to investors, in terms of, uh, you know, what, growing the top line? How, how are they so much better?
3: Yeah, I mean, basically everything you mentioned, uh, they're running loan growth, runs well above peers, uh, charge-offs run less than half the rate of their peers, um, you know, ROE in the, in the mid to high 30s, which is really uh, uh, the envy of, of everyone in the card industry. Um, so if you had to kind of bet on one, and really the, the, the core of Amex is the, is the super premium consumer base, you know, these are people paying $700 a year to swipe their platinum card, Uh, So, if you had to bet on one group of consumers doing well in a recession, it would be uh, Amex cardholders.
1: See, I stick with the classic green card. Not me, dude. No, I mean, I'm I'm classic, old school, green Amex. That still has cachet for me.
2: I got the platinum card with little flowers painted on it. They may be hand painted. And I felt so special until I read this story that um, they've Got they've attracted new cardholders at like a record pace uh, in the top tier, and actually, I already felt this. I already feel this when I go to the American Ex- Ex- Express Platinum Lounge yeah. at the airport. Yeah, and there are more people trying to get in the Platinum Lounge <laughs> than like going to McDonald's. You know, <laughs> a, I'm telling you, it's it's like um I don't feel at all special anymore. Is that a problem? You think? <laughs> Well, here's the other spend? side of that. Uh, <laughs> Not that just equation. for me, but for Amex.
3: <laughs> the other side of that equation, Matt, is that they spend a massive amount of money on marketing—five and a half billion this year, uh, targeting the same next year—and um, you know they have to provide benefits to their customers to keep signing up new cards at the rate they've been doing. So their their card fees, which are really a key part, a key a key earnings lever uh, over the last year, um, growth there is slowing. So I think some of the, some of what you're seeing in the market today is probably. Um, uh, seeing some of these key uh, growth areas uh, coming starting to slow.
1: What's the difference, uh, if any, Ben, between an you know an Amex cardholder and a Visa cardholder? Is there different spending, I guess, levels, trends? How do you think about that?
3: Yeah, so uh, Amex is very focused on travel and entertainment. Uh, both of those things have lagged in the post-pandemic uh, recovery, so that's kind of given Amex these uh, sort of long legs. Um, to do better over the last couple of quarters, and some of their peers who are more focused on, you know, everyday spend, good and services, um, gas stations, for instance. So, you know, you saw a Discover report a couple of days ago; um, their provisions almost doubled, uh, and that's kind of reflecting their middle market consumer, who's really being hit by uh, inflation at the gas pump, uh, and and for the most part, Amex customers are not hit by that. You know, they're out there. Buying Taylor Swift concert tickets, um, you know, traveling to Europe, those kinds of things. All
1: right. To be honest, the only time I use my Amex card really is when I use my corporate Amex for business travel. Um, what's Amex? Yeah.
2: That's because Paul walks around in the world with a giant roll of cash. <laughs> I'm not joking, right? So he always has like a ton of Benjamins in his pocket. Still. Okay, you uh, just
4: set him up to be mugged, mugged when walking. he leaves yeah, the, work. Yeah, yeah but
2: it's, it's unusual, is my point. Not everybody. Yes. Exact
1: Why don't you describe as as you. them <laughs> <Okay. in> people? <laughs> exactly, I'll be walking out of the office at 105 today. Um, so, Ben, um, what are they saying about business travel, business spend?
3: Uh, so, business is, is, people think of it as sort of a core part of Amex's uh, customer base, but it's, um, you know, an increasingly less relevant part. Uh, nowadays, the, the biggest growth engine is the U.S. Uh, card business, and um, a, a third of that is, is millennials and Gen Zs, really. So, you know... Amex is, is forward thinking, you know, they're, they're still serving their corporate customers, but um, it's not sort of a key part of the uh, value proposition anymore uh, on the growth side as they look forward.
2: I mean, it's not the, so in the past when you wanted the ultimate credit card, you got the American Ex- Express yes. Platinum card, right? Yep. Now, um, there are these. there's this whole line of Sapphire cards, which are, I think Visas or MasterCard, but, I, You know, other banks have offered competing products. Do you see competition hotting up against Amex?
3: Yeah, competition is is huge. It's always been huge in this space, especially a sort of top wallet share. Um, you know, every, every uh, card company is, is opening a, uh, an airline lounge. So, <laughs> um, you know, it's been the case for the last 20 years. Everyone's always calling out Amex saying uh, they're catching up, they're catching up. Um, but, you know, they do, they, they do the necessary investment every year. Um, they're going to spend five and a half billion again next year. Uh, and, and their card is on uh, about a three year refresh cycle. So, um, you know, in the next uh, year or two, we're coming up uh, probably on another refresh where you'll see them if anything, add to the value proposition and probably raise the fee.
2: The shares are at a three-year refresh cycle. I mean, we're right where we were at the beginning of 2021. Are they going to move higher?
3: Yeah, so Amex is still um, quite fully valued relative to their peers. Um, they're trading about 4x book, which is, is way wow. out of line with the 1.5x of, of the peer group. And their 13, 14x uh, price to earnings. So, I think some of the pressure you're seeing there is, yeah, they've set ambitious growth targets and they've met them over the last couple of years, um, but you can only grow so fast off, off a big base. So, I think the market is is uh, getting a little bit skeptical of uh, the, the 10% revenue growth target in, in the forward years. Um, and so, I think that's what you're seeing reflected in the stock today.
1: All right, Ben. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Ben Elliott, uh, he covers all the consumer financial uh, companies for Bloomberg Intelligence is based down in uh, Washington, D.C. Amex uh, put up some big, big numbers. Stock's off about 3 or 4%, though. Uh, you know, maybe, uh, as John Tucker suggested, you know, buy the rumor, sell the news, or maybe the guidance here probably was a little bit uh, less than stellar.
0: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of visit bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more
4: you're listening to the team. Tent live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right, listening to Fed Chairman Jay Powell yesterday at the Economic Club of New York uh, in his speech and then in his uh, fireside chat with Bloomberg's David Weston, I came away, and I think the, the market came away with, all right, the Fed is going to stay on hold here, but... They're also keeping future hikes on the table. That seemed to be the message and that seemed to be the consistent message. Um, let's see if it's a me- if it's the same message that uh, the good folks at City are, are talking about. Stephen Whiting, he's a chief investment strategist at City Global Wealth. So Stephen, again, it, it appears that this Federal Reserve is comfortable worth where we are on rates here, and maybe even another rate hike on the table. Is that how you guys are, are thinking about it over there at Citigroup?
5: I think that was the message of Chairman Powell Uh, He acknowledged that we're making progress. Of course, he pointed to backward-looking inflation is still too high. Um, It's always kind of difficult to have core inflation at 2% when shelter price inflation is still about 7.5%. That's 45% of the core. So the the issue is he's acknowledging the progress and he's especially acknowledging that some of these softer measures of the tightness of the labor market um, have come off. Um, that the forward-looking signs um, are weaker, uh, and that the Fed is already at a restrictive policy stance. And it gets more restrictive every month with quantitative tightening. So uh, I think that, again, he's really trying to say that, yes, we've achieved a lot, but we're not going to take it for granted uh, that we are absolutely done. So he's not taking uh, that notion out that the Fed still has the option of tightening further.
2: I mean, if they're restrictive now, I would hate to see what it really what it really looks like when they get tight. I mean, five point four percent growth is what we're seeing in the Atlanta now uh, a GDP forecast.
5: Well, that's that's you know really not indicative of the year. No, it's no, it's not, it's it's really indicative quarter to quarter volatility in the economy. Um, and you know, no, we're not in the environment where we were in 2020, where we had plus or minus 30 percent quarter to quarter GDP. But um, you know, I think a lot of things uh, have surprised to the upside. We've raised our economic forecast as of August, you know, by a full one and a half percent for the year. What's the striking part of all of this? What are your What are your, what, what are your we,
2: forecasts for the year, Stephen? I mean, uh, shut us
5: for full year. Yeah, two three for full year GDP slowing uh, about a half percentage point, so to about one eight in the coming year. Uh, and uh, if anything, it could be a little bit more attenuated. The sort of the strength and the slowdown a little bit the really striking thing about the economy is that in the year past the growth rate of employment exceeded the growth rate of gdp by the most since 1974. Wow! not a good year wow right so profits have fallen we've gone through uh, what i would say is in the manufacturing and trade sectors and components of the housing sector we've already gone through uh, a recessionary adjustment at least a mild one and yet employment growth has been this strong. I think that changes in the coming year and that we're likely to get some rebound in profits while uh, headcount is going to be a lot more stable. So um, I think that's the optimistic call for rates. Um, if we just continue to see, regardless of what how the economy does, regardless of tightening in monetary policy, uh, employment still rages on, well, then you still have the existing problems that markets have now in 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 not knowing where the top is on rates.
2: But do you think that turns around, Stephen? I mean, if employment growth was stronger than economic growth in the past year, in the next year, as economic growth slows down, does employment growth um, take a leg even lower than that? I mean, do we start to- I think we're headed to a jobless
5: recovery. Yeah, I think we're headed to a period in which you know, there's no V the in the economy. There's no collapse in everything, everywhere, all at once that everybody's waiting for, like 2020, where it's as clear as day. It can only get better. Um, it's not that. But employment growth, just the industry composition of employment growth, the recovery in services, which took a depression, a uh, strange imposed depression in, in industries that normally don't even fire people, uh, that rebound in services really drove that outperformance of the labor market, Uh, and I think it's going to slow. And at the same time, uh, you know, there are areas that are just long cycle, multifamily construction, for example. Now, construction is an industry that normally has, you know, double-digit gains and losses around recessions. Um, It's only slow, and that's despite a 21 percent drop in residential investment. But what's happened here is the longer cycle components of construction multifamily housing, which takes three years of construction time, four years of planning. Well, um, activity right now is still demanding a lot of labor uh, and it's at a record high share of total construction activity. So that is going to come off and I think everyone assumes that there's been this really short policy lag, hey, everybody can get used to the Fed quickly. That might be the true in financial markets, but it's not true in the economy. So I think we're headed for a slower labor market in the coming year. You know, despite the fact that profits down in the last year will probably recover a little less than consensus, but they're on their way up.
1: All right, Stephen, given that economic backdrop, what's the investment call coming out of Citi these days? What are you telling clients to do?
5: Well, you know, look, I think uh, this current period of greater concern about security is uh, something we can't dispute everyone. We can't uh, tell everyone. Are we certain that there's no widespread conflict? History shows that that in more than 90% of cases, that is true. Um, We're not gonna change and create a turning point for the world over uh, regional security issues. Um, I think for the equities markets, everyone has said, well, you know, if we don't know where the top is in rates and oil, then we uh, have issues. But uh, broadly speaking, we've restored value in both stocks and bonds. We've restored, uh, again, near record high real interest rates. If you look at the TIPS markets, Uh, Again, 2.5% government-guaranteed bond yields, plus inflation compensation. Think about that. 6% corporate bonds. Now, here's another one. Small and mid-cap growth companies, those with good balance sheets and profits, not the ones that have levered up, are trading about 30% below their long-term valuation average, uh, down by a 15 PE multiple. So we started to add there. Not taking a whole lot of aggregate risk, but it's time to recognize those growth opportunities.
2: We don't see a lot of bargains, do we, Stephen? Because I hear, uh, Torsten Slock, I think a couple days ago, sent out um, a PE for the Magnificent Seven, yeah, which that, was yep. like 45. <laughs> yeah. And for the S&P 493, which was still 19. Um, now, I've heard others say it's more like 16, but it's it's not below terribly below the historical average. And then in terms of credit, you don't see um, spreads wide. You know, uh, they're still pretty tight.
5: Well, this is, uh, again, the reason why we're not investing along the lines of just adding SP 500. You know, for large cap exposure, we're doing equal weight SP. And we're overweighting, again, within a neutral global allocation for small and mid cap companies. You know, we found true bargains and small and mid cap growth companies 15 times the long term average PE for the sector. Is 21 times that's not russell 2000 again that's again companies that have grown their earnings about 12 percent per year for the last 10 years um and largely exclude things like banks that have levered up in the small cap area so it's being more specific uh than i think just saying the market um our return outlook is is moderate i think at this point if we're right about inflation coming down rates peaking and profits starting to bottom um, again, it's not going to be 12% EPS growth like the consensus thinks. We're at four. Uh, we still think, again, the broader markets will have a positive return, but some of these valuation opportunities are pretty good. And I would say especially the U.S. bond market stands out with some of the highest yields in the world for high-quality investment-grade companies. So it's not a matter, of again, of chasing uh, low-quality spreads. It's, it's earning a, a prospective real yield. Uh, and that could be as much as 4% for investment-grade corporates.
1: Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting uh, your thoughts and uh, insights there. Stephen Whiting, he's a chief investment strategist at City
4: Global Wealth. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Let's get that. Uh, Back to the leading geopolitical issue out there. And that is, of course, uh, what's happening in Israel. Micheline Ishe joins us. She is a professor at the Joseph Korbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Uh, She joins us here. Um, Micheline, thanks so much for joining us here. What do you believe Israel should do in response to what was almost two weeks ago, the terrorist attack? What do you think they should do here?
6: well uh, as any country uh, that has been attacked in an unlawful manner um, with uh, an intensity and a scope that was unprecedented it's clear that it has to defend itself Uh, it will defend itself as we hear in the media uh, by just sending ground troops. now it it took some time to do that because it wanted to sort of somehow shelve the infrastructures of, of the northern gaza in order to send its troop now you ask about what it should do uh, uh, it has the right to self-defense under international law uh, it has of course to be consistent with not um, uh, creating excessive uh, death uh, that uh, surpasses the military advantage which will be a difficult call uh, but what it should do and will do will probably be defending itself Uh, And here we all hope that it will be done uh, with uh, international law in mind.
2: So um, do you have problems with the blockade that uh, now has kept humanitarian aid out of Gaza? I mean, you could understand um, the anger, right, obviously, uh, initially, but then there are over a million people in Gaza under the age of 15. So. You know, they weren't even born when the Palestinians elected Hamas in 2006. Um, Is that is that something that the Israelis need to be better at doing, letting letting food and medicine and water, maybe even fuel through or, you know, do you see that Hamas just takes what they want right away and doesn't care about the rest of the people? And so it's kind of fruitless.
6: Well, it, it, it's probably one of the concerns of the Israelis that uh, Hamas might be taking some part of the humanitarian aid that will be delivered. Well, not just the, might
2: be. The... I mean, definitely, right? The, most They, they, likely, they butcher most babies. Likely. They stole the, They stole already a lot of fuel that went in yes. last yes. week. Yeah.
6: So there will be an important need of an important triage, a question who is going to be doing it. At the same time, you have, as you said, a humanitarian crisis with uh, close to a million of people now trying to evacuate to the south of uh, Gaza, a very small strip of of uh, area with a highly dense, densely populated uh, people. So uh, there will be opening, as a result of the Biden uh, um, visit to Israel, there will be an opening of truck uh, delivering food and water, it's very unclear as to what extent there will be uh, electricity, because the electricity can be used also for warfare uh, purposes. But there will be certainly a situations in which we will see in the coming days opening in the Rafah crossing, at least from what we hear from the Americans and and the Israelis as well.
1: Micheline, how concerned are you about this conflict, which is currently between Israel and Hamas? broadening out to something that includes more of the Arab players in the region. How much of a risk do you think that is?
6: Uh, it is always a risk. We know that uh, Iran as um, we uh, it, Iran has sponsored uh, Hezbollah and also Hamas. and then we also know that there was just as yesterday or two days ago just uh, missiles that were intercepted by American. Uh, boats uh, uh, launch uh, toward Tel Aviv. So there is a possibility always of a war to be to spiral in the wrong direction. At the same time, it's worth suggesting uh, that the fact that Iran has been very much weakened, years of protest uh, also in its own country, Hezbollah has become also very weak. Um, uh, uh, party in in lebanon and lebanon has been becoming a failed state so those two countries though they might want to unify and they might want to show their support to the palestinians also are hesitant in full-fledged uh involvement so they are waiting i think that if they see that there is in the north of israel more infights or missile rockets uh, going in the directions from israel to 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 hezbollah they probably will be further involved what is uh Reassuring, in a way, is that the United States has sent its two aircrafts onto the East Mediterranean Sea. And in that sense, it provides a form of deterrence uh, to the potential escalation of uh, of countries in the region. And, Professor,
1: I guess, can you help us just understand kind of the support that Hamas enjoys in Gaza, among the Palestinian people, I guess.
2: I'm just wondering, to what extent- So the... hard. It's been a question that's really hard to get yep. an answer uh, on. Do you the know...
1: Palestinians support Hamas, and if so, to what extent do you think?
6: I think that if you were asking the same questions in October 5th or 6th, you probably would see a lot of dissent among Palestinians, uh, with respect to their support of Hamas, remember that the last elections in ha- in, in Gaza Strip was in 2006, which means it was 17 years ago. Very difficult to assess that level of legitimacy. Most, moreover, we know that Human Rights Watch have uh, criticized heavily Hamas for detaining, incarcerating, torturing. Uh, its own people and not being the most friendly when it's come to their women's rights. So, a lot of dissent among its population. But you can make the same argument, not quite the same, but a somewhat similar argument uh, with respect to the Israeli. They have distrusted their government now since November 2022. It was an elected government, but still very much distrusted as a result of the protest movement. Nonetheless, during time of war, uh, there was there is a unity 300,000 peoples have been mobilized uh, among the reservists to fight that war unconditionally among the many protesters. So I will I will assume that the same will happen in wartime on the other side.
2: How would, you know, a human rights advocate prosecute a war? against an enemy that doesn't care about its own people you know that even takes refuge in you know hamas military activities come out of schools and hospitals you know that use their own people as as a defense how do you prosecute that kind of war if you're concerned about civilian uh you know uh, in- injuries and deaths
6: well, it, it, it is, uh, from an international humanitarian law, certainly a very difficult proposition. First of all, as you know, international humanitarian law uh, has to be reciprocal, so it it it's, it has to be consistent for Hamas' side and for the Israeli side, even if one side does not do it, the other still um, has the burden of... Uh, being constrained by those international law. How it prosecuted would be very different. Difficult. Israel has the right to defense with respect to international law, but it has also be, its constrained with respect to the how it targets a military versus civilian. Civilians, as you said before, are already part or already embedded in in the military wings of Hamas, which makes it very difficult to go after uh, the military wings of Hamas, but what they really have done and have tried, at the very least, it's to first of all call for an evacuations of the north side of Gaza to the south of Gaza in order to make sure that the target, the target, the object of target was not the innocent civilians but the military wing. Very difficult to do on the long run because there will be um, yep. excessive casualty yes. uh, in the crossfire.
1: Micheline, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting the benefit of all your experience. Um, uh, Micheline Ishe, Professor of International Studies and Human Rights at the University of Denver. And, And folks, I'm just looking at her bio and she's been everywhere talking about human rights and teaching about human rights. We appreciate getting a few minutes of Professor Ishe's time.
4: You're listening to The Taint, our Live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: One of the big stories in markets uh, really over the last several weeks and months has been crude oil. And we've got another move higher today, and WTI crude oil over 90. Uh, Fernando Valley joins us. He covers all the global energy markets. Fernando, what's, what's happening in, in the oil market these days?
7: Well, so much, uh, Paul, it's been, uh, it's been pulling all directions, but especially this past week, we had very, uh, large drops in inventories for both crude oil and uh, refined products in the U S which definitely added to the, uh, geopolitical tensions and bringing oil prices higher over the past few days.
2: So, um, we have enough here in the U S to, even if we're cut off from the rest of the world, um, to, to, to serve our needs, right? Is that true as well as, I know it's true for cr- crude oil. Is that true as well as refined products as well?
7: For the most part, yes. Uh, we have between the U S and Canada, we have nearly uh, 19 million barrels a day of oil uh, production. And then if you add Mexico and some other friendly nations we're in good, good steed on refined products. It's a little bit lower. Uh, and the biggest issue there, we are net importers of gasoline uh, especially into the East Coast because it's usually cheaper to bring it from Europe than it is to the Gulf Coast, thanks to uh, Paul's favorite law, the Jones Act. Exactly
1: right. Don't worry, I'm working on that. I'm working on that. All right. I I know it's a supply and demand kind of story when we're talking about commodities here. It appears to me that OPEC Plus, their cuts in production have in fact worked. Is that do we can we give them some credit there?
7: I mean, it has worked slightly, but I I think ultimately a lot of this has been geopolitical risk. And you think when uh, you cut as much as they have, you know, over two million barrels a day, theoretically, um, you should have a a larger impact. You you shouldn't be struggling to get to the 90s. And obviously external events conspiring to that. I think it's very clear when you look at the U.S. that the demand is not uh, the demand side of the equation is not sticking to the $90 plus oil, or even the high uh, uh, crack spreads as well. If you look at just how much gasoline came off the uh, came off in July, and now in the past few weeks is even more so, uh, it's clear that the U.S. consumer, uh, and that can be a, a kind of the the benchmark, the bellwether for others, is struggling with elevated fuel prices.
2: Hang on, when you say the Jones Act, are you talking about the Merchant Marine Act of 1920? Yes. This is a law requiring that all goods transported on uh, the water between two U.S. ports are transported on either ships that have been constructed in the U.S. Oh, well, not either. Both ships that have been constructed in the U.S. and, and that flagged. fly the U.S. flag and that are owned by U.S. citizens and that are crewed by U.S. citizens and permanent residents. So I guess that makes it more expensive uh, sometimes to ship. Crude from the Gulf up right. to the East Coast. So
1: if you live on the East Coast, you every time
2: you, you got shale
1: oil in your backyard and gas, you can't get it.
2: You, the exactly. pipe, but you, can't pipe
3: that you can not pipe. You
2: get it, but you just have to pay for U.S. built ships crewed by U.S. <laughs> servicemen, uh, owned uh, by US. But a pipeline. Cleaner. You don't have a it. They can't build a
1: pipeline. They won't let you build pipelines. There's a anymore. pipeline
2: running through my backyard. <laughs> yeah, but you live in New, New Jersey. Jersey. There's nothing to destroy there, right? Through the rest of America. <laughs> I there's important pardon. wildlife.
1: Important <laughs> wildlife. Fernando Valley, thank you so much. Uh we appreciate it. Uh good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Build a pipeline from the shale of Pennsylvania into John Tucker's backyard in Jersey. Problem solved. I don't know why we don't do that, but that's the Jones Act. Well, it can't uh, go from Pennsylvania, right? Where are you going to refine it? I don't know. Build a refinery.
2: I, th- or, I, th- I thought you had to go down to... Oklahoma to do that. We'll you know, build a refinery in New Jersey. I think well, we, we got plenty have of them. Millions We've of them. already got plenty of them.
4: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Matt, I'm going to show off my telecommunications chops to you right now. Wide Area Networking, it's known as WAN. WAN. Yep, Local Area Networking. LAN. Okay, oh, see, I don't know, That's kind of all I kind of know. I just, we got these little nodes all over the office and apparently they tie you all together and so you can do the wireless and wireline and all that networking stuff, but the people actually do that for a living. Uh, one of those gentlemen is right here today with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, that's Phil Montram. Uh, he is Executive VP and General Manager at Aruba, which is a Hewlett-Packard enterprise company. Phil, thanks so much for joining us here. I know you're based on the West You know what I just thought, I I just
2: kind of occurred to me, Phil, the work you do is important to nearly every single person on a daily, if not an hourly or minute-to-minute basis, and no one understands what you do. (laughs) <laughs> is
8: that meet me included? Yeah. No 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 no. No, no yeah. is that you're, like you're yeah. exactly right. Yeah, no. Uh, we reckon that so these access points on the ceiling that connect your uh, Wi-Fi devices and get you to the internet. Uh, we've shipped about 28 million of those since we started as a company about 20 years ago, um, and we believe this is Aruba or yeah, yeah. No, this is Aruba before yeah, okay. uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise acquired us, and we think at any one time you would have a hundred million people connected to these access points around the world. And they'll be in schools, hotels, offices, emergency services. I mean, this stuff is real. So yeah, you've got to have a really good, stable platform for customers. But when you're at a cocktail
2: party and someone says, what do you do? You don't start talking about, um, you know, wireless SD-WAN solutions so that we can edge to cloud. (laughs) You've never seen seen me at a cocktail party.
8: No, I mean, how do you make it easier for like, Yeah, look, you know, I I talk about the fact that I work for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, which is a great technology company, and we focus in three areas. We focus on hybrid cloud, we focus on AI, and then we focus on networking. And then after that, I'll talk about the fact that, you know, we supply these access points, and then the access points link to something called a campus switch, and we provide those. And then they link to a network that you just talked about, which is SD-WAN. So, you know, I talk about the fact that we kind of follow the chains and the network. And so that's where we expand our technology. How has that business changed
1: with the pandemic and more people working from home and remotely and all that kind of stuff?
8: Yeah, I mean, look, the good thing about um, being a network provider is any time something changes in a business, there's an impact on the network. So people go and work from home, and it's like, right, we need to change the network so that people can communicate remotely. People come back into an office. You need to upgrade the Wi-Fi. People move workloads out to the cloud. Whenever there's a change in business, there's a resulting impact on the network, and that's good for our business because that's what drives demand.
1: So is the growth for your business just – I would think like in emerging markets is that where the growth it's, might be no it's,
8: it's everywhere it's i mean everywhere. which which organization Doesn't want to stay on top of the network. I mean, this technology. Correct, uh, yeah, 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 because it goes faster. You go from Wi Fi 5 to Wi Fi 6 to Wi Fi 7. So these upgrades obviously make the network go a lot faster. Obviously, people are more concerned about security as well now. So we made some investments in security. We bought a company called Axis Security about four or five months ago because this stuff is very real, isn't it, for customers? You know, you want better, you want faster networks and you want to make sure they're secure.
1: So who is responsible? That's a good question responsible for the security of a network is so, it kind of like you guys is it me
8: as the customer well it's a, it's a, it's a team isn't it so you as the user you know if you if, if i'm the network manager right obviously i have a responsibility to make sure the secure network but as users you know you need to make sure that you're not Downloading the wrong apps, and you know, getting caught phishing or whatever it might be. You know, it's a collective responsibility to make sure that the uh, you know the information in an enterprise is uh, secure. I'm always worried about getting caught edging to cloud. Sure. <laughs> I know. What
2: what uh, what's the AI component of your business?
8: Okay, so we do a lot in AI. We bought. Uh, we've got quite a good history. In this area, because we bought um, Cray supercomputers, heard about them, yeah, years yep. ago, and so they, they they're, I mean, world experts in building these kind of big models for weather systems and all this sort of stuff. And then, obviously, more recently, you've seen a huge demand for AI. And what we're doing there is using some of that knowledge and smarts from Cray, blending it with the infrastructure that we provide, and then really supporting customers as they develop their large language models and other other, um, developments in the AI space. So we see huge demand right now um, as a company from AI. How
2: do you make – how do you – Uh, make these things more sustainable because AI and these data centers is going to use, like, it's going to dwarf the electricity use of Bitcoin which already gets slagged off by everybody coming on this program. So How do you deal with that demand?
8: Yeah, I mean, just generally across the board, by the way, we are huge on sustainability. And I think we're only, I mean, it's a little bit sad to say this, but we're one of only two technology companies that have actually committed to hitting net zero targets, right? But it's a big part of what HPE does. Uh, as an organization. So we take it very seriously. On the AI space, we do like water cooling and that sort of stuff. We pick data centers that are really efficient to make sure that we're sustainable. And then in the network space, we, we do all sorts of things. I mean, we'll actually take back old equipment from customers and recycle it and then sell it onto other markets. So actually, In the last two or three years we've taken back 8.2 million devices, so old pieces of network equipment, and in eighty two percent of cases, we've been able to refurb it and sell it onto another market. So sustainability is huge for Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Who's who's your competitor in, in the networking business? Who are your competitors, plural? I guess. I mean, uh, look, you know, there's a range of companies. Cisco's obviously a big player in the yep. network space, and then you get some other startups as well. But you know, Cisco's probably the big uh, the big. And kind of, kind of what's the the revenue growth driver for you? Is it just is it more customers? Is it more revenue per customer, both kind of what do you Yeah, it's both really. I mean, obviously you saw, as I said earlier, when you see big changes in the way that people work, then that drives demand. So as I say, you know, when the pandemic happened, people started to work from home. That meant people had to spend on the networks to make them secure. Now that they're trying to get people back in the offices, you know, people are only going to come back to the offices if you've got great wi- Wi-Fi coverage in the office. Otherwise, why would you come back in, right? So these changes, They drive demand and where we benefit is that means existing customers are buying more, but we're attracting a lot of new customers as well because, you know, we kind of link all this without getting too technical. We link all of this stuff together through a platform called HPE GreenLake, and that allows customers to be able to provision and manage network and IT all from one platform. So that brings in new customers as well for us.
1: Fascinating stuff. Uh, somebody's got to do it. I know I can't. Why it, Aruba? So.
8: We only have ten seconds, but why is it called? Ar- I mean, it makes me want it's to go to Aruba. Uh, why would anyone buy Aruba? I don't know. Why is it called Aruba? Uh, why is it called Aruba? Um, so I think the founders—they were looking for a name, and I guess one of them had been on a nice holiday or something. There you go. So, yeah, that was the main reason. I I'm think. going down in January. Very, Very nice. Lucky love, man. I You're love lucky Aruba. Man.
1: Phil Mottram, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate executive VP and GM at Aruba, a Hewlett Packard enterprise
4: company. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: It is that time of the week when we ask the question, what is Matt Miller driving? Yeah. Yeah. And we can, I think go, it's we can go a million different ways
2: on this, but I'll let you take well, it. Well, I love that Denise ended her report with yes. uh, shares of Harley-Davidson, because I was just looking at the comp function on Harley-Davidson. You know, that's the uh, function that looks at a stock um, with total return over a certain period of time. It defaults to five years, and although it's not apples to apples – Polaris stock has outperformed Harley-Davidson stock really? over the past five years. With uh, total return included, um, you see, Polaris stock is up 18% and Harley is down 15%. Now, uh, I' say Polaris because they make Indian motorcycles. okay, and that's Very what I'm cool. riding. Oh, that's what I'm driving this this week. I'm driving an Indian uh, chief bobber, Dark horse. Nice. But suffice it to say, it's kind of the mid range in terms of weightiness of bikes for Indian. They make, well, they make a flat tracker that's extremely extremely popular. Okay. Um, and then they, they make a, a scout, which is kind of the entry level. It's a very like cool looking, dark old Bobber style. Uh, the chief is a little bit heavier uh, maybe for a little bit longer range rides. And then, um, they make the big bikes, um, gotcha. uh, that are a little too big for me, but I want to bring in Mike Doherty. He's the president of Indian for Polaris. He joins us, uh, right now. I'm going to say out of Medina, Minnesota. Is that right? Yeah, you got it right. Nice. Exactly. Um, so nice I, good golf I, course. Out there. I talked. To, I was talking to Mike earlier and, and told him a little story um, about me test driving this bike, and I'll okay. share it with you. It, it's kind of it's kind of corny, but when I moved into Scarsdale, I had all these guys to deal with, right? My mortgage broker sure. and the con- contractor and my uh, insurance guy. Insurance guy is totally cool. He lives in the neighborhood. He's got uh, kids that go to the schools and. I was like dude let's go get beers and he was never like ready to bro out you know <laughs> he was like yeah no I'm, I'm too busy okay he never really talked to me that much really? even though i'm insuring all my vehicles with him you know but the other day he comes by to pick up some plates and he says man that is a cool indian you've got nice. parked in your driveway <laughs> now all of a sudden he's calling me he wants to come over he wants to hang out you know bros and he wants to be a bro and this <laughs> is like to me, this is one of the coolest aspects of motorcycling. Like, it, it's it's beyond just um, it, obviously a method of transportation that gets you from A to B, um, or a lifestyle. It's like really creates a community, and I nice. love um, the the uh, the the journey that Indian, uh, the Indian brand has gone since Polaris um, took it over. You've also, Mike, really been selling a lot more of these, right? I've seen a lot of stories about the jump in sales for Indian. You're taking market share away from Harley Davidson, and you're becoming like one of the big American players. You are
9: arguably one of the two, right? Tell us about Indian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and welcome to the Cool Kids Club. I'm glad that uh, you like the... uh, The bike and you've had some positive experiences with it it's a uh indians on a roll right now for sure uh you know we launched the bike uh once we purchased the brand in 2011. uh we we came out with our first versions of the indian in 2013 so really just the the last decade but uh we've been gaining share uh really in every market we compete in and most every segment uh for the 10 years since and uh yeah, we continue to take share from uh, the big player, um, but uh, people are thrilled with their bikes. And the Chief is kind of the bike that kind of comes right in the middle. It, uh, it kind of plugged a, a gap we had in our product lineup. So now we really have a, a range of bikes for every type of rider right now. So to me, the Chief is,
2: is my favorite. It's the sweet spot of the line, because I want a cruiser. Yep. I don't need a big bagger you know, with a full fairing. Um, although some people, you know, want the, those for obvious, uh, reasons, but the thing that I think, uh, sets Indian apart is the success that you've had with the flat tracker, the FTR it's a 1200 and the success that you've had in flat track racing, which is kind of where Indian made its name. So tell us about that bike and that, and that, uh, endeavor.
9: Yeah, uh, racing goes way back, you know, to the the origins of the brand. And when we uh, came back with the brand, we knew that we had to compete uh, and really live up to the performance heritage of the uh, of the brand. And uh, we have we've been kind of dominant on the uh, the racetrack, in particular the flat track racetrack. Uh, uh, we just won our uh, fifth series, uh, and uh, uh, we've got a, a champion in Jared Meese that uh, I think he's tied for now for the all-time uh, championship. So, uh, yeah, we, we've been winning, dominating on the racetrack, uh, and then we've also been uh, super competitive in the uh, the King of the Baggers and the other racing circuits that we do. But the flat track's a great bike. Uh, it, uh, it has global appeal, and, uh, yeah, a lot of people are loving it right now.
1: Hey, Mike, who's the uh- – the prototypical Indian motorcycle buyer?
9: Uh, good question. You know, most of the people that buy uh, an Indian, it's not their first motorcycle. They've oh, okay. uh, they've been around motorcycling for a while. They're experienced. They know what they want. Uh, maybe uh, want a, a more premium experience, either ownership or uh, riding experience. And so... Uh, they jump onto the Indians we sell more of scout than anything else so that's our entry into the brand uh, and then they work their way up uh, over their riding lifestyle to the chief and ultimately to uh, a roadmaster or one of our touring or bagger bikes but uh, experienced knowledgeable people that are probably looking for a little bit more performance our bikes provide uh, more performance
2: what what's the key to you think the growth that you've experienced the market share you've been able to take um, is it the racing? Is it you know just the, the the design and production of the bikes? Is it the dealership network? I've got a very cool dealer by me, Shane at White Plains, <laughs> Indian. He's like obsessed with the brand. Um, what what is it you think that's helping you helping you win?
9: You know all those things combined. Really, it's important, right? You got to honor the brand in the right way. Um, you need to give the consumers a. Uh, Premium ownership and buying experience. Our dealers are first class. I'm glad that you've had a good experience with them. That's that's normal for us, uh, and uh, and we build beautiful motorcycles. You know, the the first thing that attracts people to Indian is the style of the bikes. that that They look cool. They are cool. Uh, and then once they ride them, they uh, they appreciate the performance that they have. And uh, uh, and once they own them, we have world class satisfactions scores so you know once you get on one you kind of stay on one you convince your buddy to kind of you know go check them out and and that's how we've been winning in the marketplaces word of mouth and you know continuing to have world-class uh satisfaction
2: what's the experience like coming out of the pandemic because you know i think for a lot of people uh when we went into lockdown a lot of people were like man i gotta get on a motorcycle and get out there because you're definitely social distancing <laughs> right you know paul right you know paul was on a one of those uh Bicycles. What do you call those? things? bikes No, no. The what? Uh, oh, the uh, the with Jen Sherman and the. Oh yeah, the uh, Peloton. The Peloton, yeah. right? But he so he was uh, doing a lot yeah. during the pandemic, <laughs> and then he's not doing it so much after. Do you have the same experience with motorcycle sales? Did they soar when everyone had a social distance, and had they softened a little bit since?
9: Yeah, exactly. Uh, we couldn't keep enough bikes in stock. You know, it was hard enough trying to keep the uh, the factories running uh but the the demand was through the roof and so uh, a lot of people had to place orders for them and wait for them to come um that subsided a little bit we're kind of back to a normal sort of pre-pandemic level uh the rising interest rates you know makes it a little bit challenging for some customers to to finance their bikes but uh, we're still seeing healthy demand and we're still gaining market share. So uh, we're, we're in a good spot, but it was uh, it was a crazy couple of years for sure. Do motorcycle Are motorcycles
1: are they going electric?
9: Uh, some of them are not the not the category that we're in, you okay. know, that people like to go a, a longer distance. There are some in the smaller uh, urban setting that uh, are going electric. The the challenge right now, most brands have an electric offering, uh, or will be, or have announced them. Um, But the finding that perfect balance of where the technology of the battery power uh, and the cost of that marries up into a motorcycle that's affordable and kind of can thrill a customer, uh, that that perfect balance isn't there yet.
2: Yeah, electric. Power and like self-driving capabilities are for cagers.
9: Yes, you're a cager.
2: <laughs> I'm a cager. <laughs> you know? yes, I, am. I I don't need that. Yes, okay. I, I need the freedom, <laughs> and especially the big V twin. You know, yep. the American yeah. experience. It's sure. Um, it's so cool. The Thunderstroke engine. The development of that has been has been awesome for Indian. So uh, I appreciate you guys giving me a chance to ride this bike. Absolutely love it. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us as well on the show. Mike Doherty there is the president of Indian Motorcycles for Polaris. Cager, I've never heard that term. It's a derogatory term for automobile people from motorcycle Yeah, people. somebody okay. who sits in the car, <laughs> you know, texting during his commute, yep. which is what pretty much everybody
9: does. Yes, we do.